So let's admit it. What we're doing here is pretty unusual. To come to a place like this and gather with close to 90 people and then be in silence for weeks at a time. To sit and walk, to cultivate stillness and presence. Just compare that with how we might normally live our lives, but certainly how most of the world live their lives with a lot of busyness and distraction and effort and communications, especially in the West where there's a lot of emphasis on meetings and emails. And here we are choosing to come here for these many weeks and practice in this way. Bhante was giving us instructions this morning on walking and he kept saying, just walk normally. And I was thinking, that doesn't look that normal. Sorry, but it's a little slower than we might normally. And we don't usually just walk to and fro. I mean, any the, some, someone from outside wouldn't, wouldn't think that's normal. But here it is normal. Here this is normal for us. And if you're new to long retreat practice, perhaps being in silence for this length of time might seem a little daunting how many people did you say, you know, I'm going to, to IMS to, to sit in silence for six weeks or three months? And they said, you're going to do what? And sometimes they might even say, you? <laughs> if they don't think that being silent for that length of time is, is possible. But actually, these parts of the retreat, especially the silence, often comes to be what we actually love the most, what we're sometimes most fearful of becomes the biggest blessing. But it is a real shift. As I said this morning during the cell phone renunciation ceremony, a shift from that emphasis on always connected, always on, that so many people live in their lives. Many of us may live that way. I mean, I don't know how many Years ago, it started becoming so common that you'd go into a restaurant, half the people were on their phones, not even talking to each other. If you go through any airport, you have to weave your way through, through the people who are hauling their luggage along, just staring at their phone. Um, it's just amazing. You know, the, as I said, this draw, this almost addiction that has, has developed these days to you know, the internet, to social media, to reading emails. Actually, emails are now old hat, right? They're too slow and too cumbersome. It's like instant messages. And now it's not even words, right? It's emoticons. You've got to, you know, have a, and they're expanding that vocabulary. I saw a, a thing the other day where someone did a progression of language, which started with the hieroglyphics back in Egypt. And it's sort of like, you know, to the height of the English language and then back down to hieroglyphics again. That's where we kind of are. And all of these names like Snapchat and Instagram implying speed and ephemeralness, you know, that these things will come and go. Do you remember when people used to write letters? You know, now we have to almost watch old movies, or not movies, but movies about olden times, you know, Jane Austen and someone would get out a quill and make a pen and dip it in ink and think about what they were going to say. And now it's like everything is instant and emails, no one, I mean, they do keep them, but it's usually, you know, as evidence in a legal trial or something. It's not because of the beauty of the language. So we're really doing something very different here. And, and I'm sure you're already feeling that 
the the shift. I think it was uh, Jaya who said about the tanker that takes 20 miles to slow down. You're probably feeling that, the momentum of the busyness of your life and, and even adding to that in the busyness of getting here. And so this potential to slow down, to actually begin to savor the the everydayness of our lives here, not looking for deep or blissful or amazing experiences, but just to fully experience everything. We'll have time to do that. I don't know if this is good news or bad news, all the time in the world to do that, moment after moment, hour after hour. And in that fully experiencing everything are, of course, all of the joys, the beauty that can be here, the heart opening, but all of the difficulties and the challenges, not our usual ways out, distractions, supports. We have to be with the fullness of our experience. And so we learn how to do that here. What we're doing is learning about our minds our conditioning, our habits, why we are, how we respond to things. And in that, we're connecting more deeply with reality. Here we would say the truth or the Dhamma, the the reality of things. And we learn to be present, to be fully present. And there's magic and mystery in that. Because most of the time, I'm sure you know, we're not. We're not fully present. We're not fully connected. And that's what deepens insight. You know, this is called insight meditation. We'll be talking about insight and what insights can be and how to support uh, the process of deepening insight. And we learn these insights on a very personal level. This mind, this heart, the conditioning, the memories, the fears, the trauma, understanding that. We also can learn and deepen on an impersonal way, these universal truths. Again, we'll be talking more about that endlessly on this retreat. All through this paying attention in the simplicity. I think I said on our opening, now I can't remember, I say so many things, it's hard to remember where, but that mindfulness is becoming more popular. Did I say that already? I can't remember. So... This was in the New Yorker a little while ago. When was it? In July. And it's called The Main Forms of Entertainment on a Meditation Retreat. And I know you all can't probably see this, but I'm pressing the wrong buttons. It starts... iPad in the hall. It says... So this is an artist who went on a retreat. It could have been one of our retreats. Check out the schedule. Today's schedule, 5 a.m. wake up, 5.30 sit, 6.30 eat, 8.30 sit, 10.30 walk. It's a little different, but the basic idea is there. Very simple schedule. Did you see the squirrel? (laughs) Here I'd say, did you see the chipmunk? Yes. There's grass outside. Maybe I should have done this about four weeks in, then you'd really go, oh yeah, grass. (laughs) And then all the signs. Please only flush toilet paper as our plumbing system is weak. 
Thank you for your consideration. And she's written up there, whoa, the pipes are weak. This egg yolk is yellow. (laughs) He's here. As Analeya would say, my teacher, the Buddha. This bowl is singing to me. Still grass out there. The toilet's overflowing. I said the joys and the sorrows. Oh my God, look at my hands. Last one. The squirrel found a nut. I think you can relate, right? Andre is relating. That's about it, right, for a retreat. That's the excitement. But there was something in that, you know, grass, you know, we just usually walk over it or mow it or whatever we do. But if you've ever done walking meditation in bare feet on grass, it's a whole journey, right? And so this learning to be present for the simplicity, the details, the joys and the sorrow, because this present moment is where our life is lived. It's the only place there is, right? the here and now of it, but most of the time we're not truly there. We're so much lost in past and future. Regrets about the past, worries about the future, what we call papancha. We'll probably talk about that um, effusiveness of mind, the discursive mind that just runs on and on with all of its stories and worries. We're learning how to be fully here, and Andrea said in the opening about this journey not being the normal journey from here to there, but from here to more here, from A to more A. I thought about it, it's like A to the power of squared, A to the power of X. It's like, what is it like to deeply dive into being here, now? And again, there's so much momentum for us, it seems... I don't know whether it seems obvious, but it seems like something we've created an intention to do. It's so hard to do. This momentum that we've talked about keeps going. So that's why we always say at the beginning, take it really slowly here. Don't push yourself, have any big agendas. Settle in, take time to settle in. Again, another article I just read actually just a few days ago, New York Times, by Tim Herrera, who says, why it's so hard to put future you ahead of present you. And he says, this is Tim Herrera, I have this awful corny joke I trot out whenever I'm glossing over details for future plans with friends or brushing off something I don't want to deal with. That's future Tim's problem. Let that chump take care of it. Poor, poor future Tim, constantly set up for failure by that jerk, past Tim. Uh, As present Tim, who is always on top of things, I can say that past Tim isn't bad. He's just wired that way. And I'm sure as you're reading this, a few instances come to mind of when past you has quite inconsiderately set up future you for failure. Why do we do this to ourselves? 
What makes us act against our own self-interest, even when we're acutely aware we're doing it? At work is what's called present bias, our natural tendency to place our short-term needs and desires ahead of our long-term needs and desires. A lot of the time this comes in the form of procrastination, and there have been many studies that suggest it's a primary reason that, for example, we're bad at saving for retirement. You might know that by another name, hyperbolic discounting. Most people would prefer $100 today instead of $110 tomorrow, for example. Excuse me. Like many cognitive biases, this is counterproductive behavior that we're programmed to engage in, and some studies have suggested that we do this because we perceive our future selves the same way we perceive total strangers. It's like someone else's problem. Who I will be, what my experience will be in the future. And so this inability to take care of what we need to take care of today so that future self has more choice, has support, has what they need. What we're doing here is a radically different way of relating to our future self. This coming to know, this landing in the present moment is so we can actually come to know and integrate all parts of ourselves. So we're not actually a stranger to ourselves now or in the future. And that our past self isn't something that we have shame and blame and guilt about. It's this intimacy with ourselves that we're practicing here. And so we can learn to accept the present moment, which we can only do by being in it, open to it. We learn often how to forgive the past, the hurts and the harms, the regrets, the fears of past, and how to relate wisely to the future. What is for our true benefit? How do we act in the present moment that actually supports our well-being in future moments? This is a big part of this practice here, this intimacy, this integration, all parts of ourselves, past, present, future. And so we do this through mindfulness. Start with the foundation of the body, as we're doing in these early days, a great place to collect and anchor the attention. But what's key, and again, we'll be introducing this, talking about this more in the coming days, is the mindfulness of our minds. Mind is key. Mind is the forerunner of all things, as the Buddha would often say. So we all come here with, you know, we want to cultivate mindfulness, cultivate presence, all of these great great ideas to support our future self being more mindful, what happens? Again, lost in past and future. The mind just running amok, as it will often do. I often say the mind has no shame. What it will come up with to torment you with, to fantasize about. This is what happens. Excuse me. 
And we can't force this kind of mindfulness through, through force, through force of will. There has to be a shift in how we're relating to this present moment and to ourselves. We have to begin to prefer stillness and simplicity to restlessness and distraction, busyness and distraction. And this is a radical shift. It takes time to do that. The habits are strong. The momentum is strong of the restlessness and the distraction. Joseph Goldstein often says, distraction is the habit of the mind. We've trained ourselves to be distracted. And so to come into presence is going to take some intention over and over again. And a shift, as I said, in our understanding of where happiness is to be found. So many of us have just been conditioned to be toppling forward into the future. Or if I just get it right or get this thing or this different experience or job or um, object, holiday, whatever relationship, whatever it might be, this toppling forward, we have to see that here and now is the only place that we can find and cultivate well-being. And that letting go is actually more conducive to that than all of our ideas about control and fixing and manipulating and accumulating. That actually letting go and simplicity is far more supportive of well-being and happiness. But we have these big brains and they're deeply wired to make connections to jump from one thing to another, of this, that, what about this, remembering that, this sort of, if, if you could just diagram your thoughts, it would make this huge, complex web, wouldn't it, of all of the different bleeps and dots and burps and bits and pieces that the mind just fills itself with. How to not judge or be averse to that, but again, this preferring, this starting to prefer simplicity and presence. This is going to be our practice over and over again, this kind of letting go. And the moment-to-moment attention, the continuity of the mindfulness, again, will be, you'll hear that phrase ad nauseum, continuity, you know, moment-to-moment. And it doesn't mean that we expect you to be mindful all of the time, you know, It can be possible, but certainly not at this point of the retreat. And even some time in, this is not easy to do. But that we can create this intention over and over again, this starting again, this willingness over and over again to cultivate mindfulness, to cultivate presence. And you know we're on the cutting edge, right, of this big wave of mindfulness you know, mindfulness is in right now, right? It has been, you know, the last five or ten years, getting on the covers of magazines, everyone's writing about it. It's mindfulness and everything, right? Mindfulness and health and stress and psychotherapy and in the workplace and in prisons and in for children and um, in art. I just, for interest's sake, did a Google search, just typed in mindfulness. How many results do you think I got? You could just say a lot. 130 million. And who knows why, you know, I didn't look at the first page or so. I don't know what they were, but 130 million 
results just on mindfulness. Unfortunately, it's being touted as some kind of miracle cure. You know, you can look at books and it's the 10-minute mindfulness plan or whatever it is. And then, of course, as soon as someone says 10 minutes, someone else says, well, I can do it, teach you in five. And then I've seen magazine articles, give us two minutes and we'll teach you how to meditate or we'll reduce your stress or, you know, make you more peaceful or whatever they're advertising. We know better, right? It's not a quick or easy fix. The Buddha called this the gradual path, the gradual training. Why have we all signed up? for these weeks and weeks of practice, because it takes time. And particularly for us, what we're steeping in is not just sort of mindfulness as a, as a mental factor that we can tune into and use for different aspects of our life. It's a Dhamma practice. It's integrated into the whole path of practice of the Buddha's teachings. So it's a Dhamma training. And you'll hear this word again and again, and Dharma means literally the truth, reality, the way things are. But the Buddha's teachings were also called the Dharma because he taught the truth. He wasn't teaching some um, speculative philosophy, but pointing again and again to this is the nature of reality. Look and see, ehipasiko, look and see for yourself. Come and see for yourself. And he, he would lay it out so we could test that for ourselves. And so in this field of of, um, Buddhist studies and scholars talking about the different uh, trainings and teachings that the Buddha has offered, there's often a debate about what's unique to the Buddha's teachings, what's essential, what did he create that was never... um, developed before. And of course, the Buddha was a person of his time. There was a whole spiritual religious systems that he grew up in. And so he actually spoke and responded to those. And I think there was probably a a synergy with how his teachings landed for the people of his time, because he was using their idioms and language and concepts, but often radically turning them on, on their heads. So things like the Four Noble Truths, or his teachings on karma, on volitional action, on dependent arising, were all in response to current views, but either unique or taking concepts and really playing with them, turning them often completely around. But I actually think what was most essential and most unique, and that's not right, is it? Unique to his teaching is actually mindfulness. This teaching on present moment awareness, one definition of mindfulness, as far as I know, wasn't practiced at the time. In in the time of the Buddha, there was a lot of emphasis on rites and rituals. Um, There was a lot of emphasis on ascetic practices, which he did for many years. A lot of uh, emphasis on uh, concentration practices, which he also did to great depth. But to turn your attention to this moment-by-moment experience of all facets of our mind and body and use that to understand the nature of reality, I think was brilliant and quite radical then and, and I think still today. So mindfulness is key to the Buddha's teachings. He comes back to it again and again as central.
So what is mindfulness? As I said, it's all over, you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands of books, probably all these courses and people out there hanging up their shingle, mindfulness ex, coach, therapist, you know, whatever they're offering. Um, what is it? It should be a simple question. It's out there so much. But actually, it's not. Different schools of Buddhism might frame it differently. I've Different teachers would define it differently. Um, so there's some debate about what it is. And I, I find I'm refining my understanding of what mindfulness is all the time as I practice and discuss and read about um, the depth of, of this practice. The Pali word is sati, S-A-T-I, and its root is in memory, or to remember. So it's got something to do with memory. But as we always say, it's easy to be mindful, but it's hard to remember to be mindful. And Venerable Analia, who's written this brilliant book on Satipatthana, on the foundations of mindfulness, um, says that mindfulness supports memory. If, if we're really present for something, it's more likely we'll retain it. And so there's a strong connection. But for our usage, it really is about being in the present moment. Again, Analio defines it as present moment awareness. But that can lead us, that's the simple definition, and I want to expand it. So just for a moment, consider three people doing different things. One is a burglar creeping through a house trying to steal something. One is a a rock climber free climbing, going up a steep rock face with the danger of falling. And the other is a surgeon, you know, doing surgery on on a fellow human being. You could say that they're all mindful, right, for their different purposes, Burglar creeping through the house, don't, you know, tread softly, don't knock anything over. Very mindful. Same with the rock climber. Same with the surgeon. But for the burglar, there's unwholesome intentions, right? Trying to steal. For the rock climber, selfish intentions, and not in a bad way, but they're just protecting themselves. The surgeon has altruistic intentions, probably all mixed, but they're definitely trying to help in doing the surgery, but it's all concerned with outer actions and results. Mindfulness is an inner knowing. It's an inner knowing with an outer connectedness so we don't turn ourselves completely off, cut off from the world and the the, the sense experiences. And certainly we can be mindful as we engage and interact in the world with our eyes and all of our sense doors open. So it's an inner knowing with this outer connectedness, knowing what's happening. But I like to add a knowing that you're knowing. There's a little bit of reflection in that intent reflectiveness in that the kind of mindfulness we're practicing here is intentional. We're practicing mindfulness You could say to be more mindful, whereas these other examples, the burglars practicing mindfulness so they don't make a noise, the rock climber so they pick the right handhold, the surgeon so they make the right decisions. We're practicing it to cultivate this quality of mindfulness itself. And another term you might hear a lot is bare awareness, like just 
just the facts, just the bare awareness. And again, it, that's the foundation, the basis of what we call mindfulness. But that's just the beginning. True mindfulness, what we call samasati, and sama is a Pali word that's a prefix for all of the path factors. And again, if you're new to meditation, you've all meditated before, but you'll know that the Buddha liked lists. Lists are very helpful when teachings are given orally, which his teachings were, and they were retained orally for about 500 years. So lists help people really collect the information. So there's the Four Noble Truths, the Fourth Noble Truth, Eightfold Path. Each of the Eightfold Path factors are prefixed with Samma, which means wise or right or beneficial, leading onward. So Samasati is wise or right mindfulness. So it's a path factor. And its function is to lead to insight, as I said before, to see in a way that we see clearly the nature of reality. And with that, truth is connected to. It leads to disidentification, not a lot of selfing and clinging. And it definitely, as practiced and deepened as samasati, decreases suffering. That's the intention. Bhikkhu Bodhi, that great teacher and scholar, says that in the proper practice of right mindfulness, sati has to be integrated with sampajanya, clear comprehension. And it is only when these two work together that right mindfulness can fulfill its intended purpose. Samasati, wise or right mindfulness, must be guided by, and then he lists the other path factors, right view, steered by right intention, grounded in the three ethical factors, and cultivated in conjunction with samavayama, right effort. Right effort necessarily presupposes the distinction of mental states into the unwholesome and the wholesome. So it's central to, foundational to, but supported by all of these other path factors. We don't just develop mindfulness to be mindful or mindfulness in isolation. So the purpose, the functioning of mindfulness is to develop insight, clear seeing. Often we define this classic kind of insight as insight into the three characteristics. Again, more lists. We'll go into all of these lists in greater detail in other talks, but the three characteristics or nature, marks of existence, of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness and not self, not permanent, not anything solid there at the core. And as Bhikkhu Bodhi says, that samasati will develop wholesome qualities of mind and decrease unwholesome ones. So these three factors, I think, are key to our understanding and our practice of samasati, of right mindfulness not just for mindfulness' sake, but to have the, this functioning, these purposes. As one of our teachers, Sayadu Tejaniya, would say, awareness alone is not enough. And he's translating sati as awareness. So it's not just mindfulness, not just this present moment awareness, but that we need some wisdom or context in which to understand this present moment experience that we're having. And he would say things like, 
the basic objective of meditation is to improve the quality of the mind. We're actually training ourselves, as I said before, to understand our mind, to see how it works. I loved, I heard Andrea say a while ago, yes, we're using, um, we're training the mind, but we're using an imperfect tool to do that, which is the mind itself. So we're using an imperfect tool to do this training. Um, So it's why we have to use a lot of compassion and kindness, gentleness in this. This is not Again, an easy task that we're setting ourselves. Sayadaw Tejaniya would say, wisdom inclines towards the good, but is not attached to it. It shies away from what is not good, but has no aversion to it. Wisdom recognizes the differences between skillful and unskillful, and it clearly sees the undesirability of the unskillful. So it True samasati has this kind of natural wisdom. We don't have to put a lot of effort into this. The mindfulness reveals reality, and the wisdom can, if we give it, if we allow it to, again, we can get in the way a lot of the time, and we do, but when we're truly open to the present moment in this way, the wisdom will be revealed right there. It's like if if you pick up a hot pan, no one has to tell you, put that down. It's the natural instinctual response. And so we start to use our moment-to-moment experiences of the six senses, the five physical ones we're familiar with, and the mind, to understand ourselves, understand the nature of the world. I love this Mary Oliver poem, and it's appropriate for our purposes because it's called mindful. Every day I see or hear something that more or less kills me with delight, that leaves me like a needle in the haystack of light. It was what I was born for, to look, to listen, to lose myself inside this soft world, to instruct myself over and over in joy and acclamation. Nor am I talking about the exceptional, the fearful, the dreadful, the very extravagant, but of the ordinary. I'm thinking of that New Yorker thing, the grass, the squirrel, the ordinary, the common, the very drab, the daily presentations. Oh, good scholar, I say to myself, how can you help but grow wise with such teachings as these? The untrimmable light of the world the oceans shine, the prayers that are made out of grass. So this sense, I love it, she says, losing ourselves, losing myself inside this soft world could be our inner world, our inner mindful world, and learning from that through our presence, through our care, through our tenderness in that presence and this inner knowing that we develop through that kind of, of careful attention. So I've been talking a lot about the present moment and how important it is in all this, where everything happens. But I also like to talk about what I call the three times. This moment, 
present moment, of course, the most important one. I always remember Jack Cornfield saying many years ago, it's like the sign in Las Vegas casino, you have to be present to win, you know, and it's like that. If you really want the fruits of practice, cultivating present presence. But we lose it, right? As I said, the momentum of, of habits and thoughts and conditioning are so strong, we're often lost, thoughts of past or future. But at some point, we come back into presence. Hopefully. I mean, you could get lost forever, but I think we always eventually, especially cultivating the practice, we come back. And it's like a moment of grace, right? We're lost. We're in an outer stratosphere of plans and worries and imaginings. And then we're like, oh, right, meditation or body or breath, whatever it is, you know, it's hot in here. And then you come back into the present moment. Instead of kind of, you know, slapping yourself upside the head and, you know, back to the breath and being berating yourself and judgmental, we'll talk a lot about that. That's not helpful, just to say that right up front, not helpful, is to just take a moment with that experience and look at what was happening in a, in a big picture kind of way. And again, Utejaniya likes to say, was greed, aversion, or delusion present in that moment? Were you wanting something, pushing something away, or were you deluded, distracted, disconnected, spaced out? Just a simple kind of, oh, right, I was really lost in, in that future fantasy. I was really angry about that past situation. And so that's a little bit reflecting in the past. I call it post-mortem mindfulness. It's actually very helpful Sometimes it can be from yesterday. You realize, oh, that's what was happening then. It's really helpful. So it's not just, if we were literally only in the present moment, that's almost a form of mental instability. You know, we couldn't really function. So this slight reflectiveness, it's not ruminating. It's not trying to follow all the threads of every thought you had for the last 10 minutes or this and then that. You can do it in a moment, in a glance, in a snapshot um, about this kind of reflection. And then out of that, in the present moment, we make a choice. And again, this is present Sally supporting future Sally, oh, let's not think about that, or let's do some metta, or let's straighten the posture, and we make a choice, and we make that adjustment, or that intention, or that direction. So, of course, we're never really in the future, because the future is always in the future, but we're inclining or intending a direction for the future, for our next moment, or even period of practice. And then it's helpful to actually check in. Did that go in the direction? You know, did, did I get less sleepy or, or more awake or um, easeful in the body? And again, you don't want to uh, get rigid about this and these, these intentions, they're not like railroad tracks. They're more inclining of the mind, this balancing, this, this sort of intuitive, responsive um, connection to what's happening. You know, so it's not sort of trying to hold on to the breath or having some idea about how long you should be able to sit or walk. It's very immediate. 
very in the moment, very responsive, not going overboard with this kind of questioning, and, but it starts to happen more naturally, more intuitively, that we learn for ourselves, we become our Dharma guides as to how to balance all of the different factors that are happening, how to bring ourselves back into presence with gentleness, with kindness, how to cultivate interest, how to deepen in steadiness. We learn from tracking ourselves in this way. So the three mind moments, present, past, future, very helpful for us in our practice. And so when we do this, as I said, this is bringing the wisdom in. It's what's called satipanya. So sati is mindfulness, panya is wisdom. These two terms are often joined. Ajahn Buddhadasa, Thai forest meditation master, would always talk about satipanya. He, he wouldn't say sati very often. It was always satipanya. Just really drawing out the wisdom aspect of mindfulness and how important that is. Because as I said, satipanya naturally lets go of suffering. It's amazing how we can, just like I was talking about the future, the present Tim and future Tim, you know, we sometimes make, consciously make bad decisions or choices because our habits are so strong. We don't, we're not yet integrated into the sense of well-being. But when satipanya is operating, we have more uh, potential for doing that. What we always say is mindfulness creates a space. We're usually tumbling, again, forward into the future, everything happening so fast. Mindfulness slows everything down a little, and it can open this space within which there's a choice. And this choice point is so powerful. If wisdom is there in that choice point, we'll likely choose something that's for our benefit and well-being in the future, our future self. But we need to be there, noticing that, ready for that. And so as we develop in this way, this mindfulness begins to naturally function, to reduce the hindrances, these conflicted states, these these obstructive states of mind that we can have. And it naturally, naturally increases wholesome states and states of well-being. We don't have to put a lot of striving or effort but we just, with the persistence of our practice, this is what naturally happens. So mindfulness is this training to direct our mental energy into the present moment and clear seeing. And we really have to, um, as I keep saying, the emphasis of this talk is prefer that, prefer that to our usual habits of distraction. And I'm sure you know the story of me is endlessly compelling, endlessly compelling. This, you know, ruminating over the past, regrets and hurts and resentments, sadness, loss, grief, and then the projection into the future, fantasies, lusts, desires, Wishes, worries, fears, planning, endless, endless. I like to turn to, um, I think, the, one of the wise philosophers of the, uh, this is the 21st century, maybe 20th, 
um, Calvin and Hobbes. The philosopher would be Hobbes. Calvin is the usually not so wise. So if you don't know Calvin and Hobbes, Calvin is a little boy and he has an imaginary tiger friend and they get up to all sorts of adventures. And in this one, Calvin and Hobbes are climbing a tree and Calvin is saying, I suppose the secret to happiness is learning to appreciate the moment. I, and they get higher and higher up on the tree. I, for example, take great pleasure in being right here, right now, doing what we're doing. Sounds good, right? Hobbes says, of course, you're supposed to be in school. <laughs> Calvin says, I couldn't appreciate those moments. <laughs> so we have agendas that are strongly conditioned about, you know, our preferences. And, and we can be mindful for this, but not for that. That's too painful or unpleasant or uncomfortable. Our practice is all of it. And this choice point that I spoke about that actually can over time, like the slowing down of the super tanker, begin to wear out those old habits, those old conditionings that actually aren't really serving us anymore. And so a big part of that is learning to relate wisely to our thoughts. Thoughts aren't the enemy. Meditation isn't about stopping thinking certainly not stopping it through force of will or aversion or gritting your teeth or whatever strategies you've tried. They tend not to work. But it is about learning to understand our thoughts and not so much the content but the nature of thought itself. And again, we'll talk more about this. What is a thought? How does it impact us? We often say if, you know, if you see a thought and see it with wisdom, with mindfulness, it has, it's like a puff of smoke. But thoughts have the power we choose to give them. If you identify with them and believe them, there's your whole world, as solid as anything. And so this shifting of relationship to experience where we're tracking for ourselves. Oh, I see if I perpetuate in this way, if I follow that train of thought or practice in this certain way with this, this, in, this mind state, then I end up in this state of confusion or tightness or anxiety. If I practice in this way, if I let go or accept or allow or open to, then this arises, maybe peace or calm or interest. And so asking these questions, what's happening and how am I relating to it? We'll be talking about attitude. Again, not having to formulate a lot of these questions, but talking about this um, interest in what's happening. What am I learning here? Um, we'll probably mention at some point this acronym RAIN. Some of you may be familiar with it, where the R stands for recognize. So we just name or know what's happening. The A stands for acceptance. It's here. Can I open to it? Allow it. It can also be for allowing. The I is often said to stand for investigation, but I like interest or even intimacy. Can I really be in this experience and know it fully? And then the N stands for non-identification, not taking it personally. These are causes and conditions at play. And so we start to get curious, why are negative mind states growing? Why am I getting frustrated or impatient? What am I paying attention to? What am I cultivating here? 
Just as importantly, we want to notice when positive, wholesome mind states are growing, when we're feeling peace or calm or equanimity or kindness or generosity, metta, compassion. That's just as important as working with the difficult ones. And what I really hope to convey is that this practice isn't passive. Because there is often an emphasis on the acceptance I just spoke about or allowing, we sometimes can get the idea, oh, I just sit back and everything just rolls through and that's vipassana, that's mindfulness. Yes, acceptance is key, but we have to be engaged in our practice. We have to see what are we cultivating? What, what direction are we walking here? What, what intentions are we supporting as we're practicing? And so we can actually be engaged in our practice. Um, our first option and response nearly always can be mindfulness, just what is happening. And as I said, often that becomes satipanya, mindfulness wisdom. That response, uh, bringing the mindfulness in, things can balance just easily on their own. But sometimes we need different options. We can use antidotes if we're really in a contracted state or very aversive. Um, We can bring in some metta or loving kindness and we'll start practicing that, teaching that tomorrow afternoon. We can change the object of our meditation. We can go from sitting to walking or stand up if you're in the meditation hall. So we don't want to feel passive and stuck. This is an engaged, rich practice where, as I said, we're always learning about how best to balance the different factors of mind, how best to keep walking in the direction that we're walking in to develop these qualities of calm and equanimity and interest and wisdom. And we start to see that it's not what's happening that's important. This is really hard to get because, again, the story of me is so compelling. What's happening to me seems like it's the most important thing, you know, and there are ways that, are, that it is. But what Sayadaw Utejaniya would always say, what's happening is never a problem. It's how you're relating to it. The knee pain or the heartache or the longing all can be held in mindfulness. All can be open to further and deeper exploration. And with that shift, with bringing whatever it is, a pain in the body, a memory, a worry, uh, external experiences, we open to them with mindfulness and this array of skillful options can be possible for us. And our practice is learning that for ourselves. What does that look like? How do we deepen in that way? So I really think of mindfulness and especially these kind of long retreats as kind of like a reprogramming. You know, we've got all these programs conditioning that we're so habituated to, we don't even know that we're operating out of them. And as I was thinking about this, it reminded me of, you know, what happens every few years. You you buy a I I know I do, I buy, I spend a lot of time on computers and emails, as I've been talking about. And you find, you know, get a new computer and it all seems so bright and sparkly and shiny, right? And it's lightning fast and everything seems like it works great. But over time, 
things sort of slow down, right? I don't know what happens, but everything that used to work so easily takes ages to load or seems to crash or whatever happens. And so this was happening to me and I got one of these tune-up utilities where it says, you know, we'll take your computer and make it squeaky clean and almost brand new again. And so this program showed me all of the stuff that was happening un, you know behind the closed door of my computer that I didn't all the programs that were loading every time I turned it on and all the processes that were happening and the lost links and the corrupt registries and all of this technical kind of stuff and it g- gives you this glowing report of how it's cleaned it all up you know with these bright sunshiny images and I like great I can't say I noticed my computer was hugely better, but it felt better. It was like spring cleaning, like get all that stuff out of there. Um, I think mindfulness is kind of like that, you know. We're like a computer that's got all of these programs that have loaded up over time. Um, And you just press a button or sometimes you don't even know you've pressed the button and off they run. They just spin out the same patterns, the same reactions, the same habits. Um, and sometimes habits are helpful. We can certainly have good habits. Habits, are, we develop them because they seem to save us time. But many of them get rigid. Many of them are a little dysfunctional. Many of them no longer serve us. And so we need to take a look. Instead of waking up every morning and it's like open the eyes and there all those old programs and, and habits load up, And off we go into our day just doing the same old things, even though we find ourselves a lot in pain or disconnected or fearful or hurt. But we're acting out of those old programs and patterns. Here we have the opportunity. It's not quite like erasing your hard drive or anything. We're not going that far. But we're definitely looking at what is it we want to cultivate? How do we best do that? How do we have a heart that's open and caring and wise and responsive instead of being contracted and fearful? How can our minds be clear and bright and curious and engaged with experience? So this is what the potential is here is this exploration, this inner exploration, this understanding of this warm, soft mind-body-heart that will actually be a deep and profound shift in how we relate to ourselves, this intimacy, this this, um, deepening sense of presence and integration, past, present, future selves, all coming together for our well-being, for our own benefit, to develop and deepen in wisdom and compassion, but not just for our well-being. We do not do this in isolation. As we learn more and more in who we are and our true selves, as our hearts open, as our minds become clear, there's just naturally a ripple effect. And in doing this practice, there's great benefit, not just for ourselves, but for the world. So let's just take a moment to let the words settle into silence.
Thank you for your attention. And there's a little over half an hour for some walking meditation, and then at nine o'clock. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.